All right, if you're guests with us, we are in a series called Gospel Community, and we've been looking at over the course of the last several weeks uh, some choices that we need to make in order to experience the fullness of community. We've said community is the fabric that's created whenever life gets woven together with life in such a way that they create something that's bigger and more beautiful than any one of those could be in isolation from the other. And what God is doing in his church is he's weaving lives together with other lives in such a way that the church becomes a fabric that's strong and resilient and beautiful. But there are certain choices that you and I have to make if we're going to experience the fullness of that kind of a community. Uh, Our text this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, where we're going to be. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen as we read it together. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we'll read down through verse 11 together. And here Peter writes these words, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Back in the 1930s, as our country was in the midst of perhaps the greatest economic collapse that we've experienced to this date called the Great Depression, there were many families across our nation who were either unemployed or underemployed, and so they didn't have the resources they needed to put food on the table every week or to pay their light bill every month. And so our government devised a system and, and came up with a, a, a way to address that particular need that existed that was widespread in our country. And out of the Great Depression emerged what is known even today as the welfare system in our country. And the welfare system was designed to be uh, a, a temporary assistance to those who were either unemployed or underemployed so they could continue to provide food for their families and they could continue to have electricity. So they could meet the basic needs and necessities of life. But it was never intended to be something that people lived on long term. It was supposed to be a short, temporary solution to a problem in the midst of a really difficult and challenging season. And so the, pro- but the, and so the welfare system was intended to be a good thing that would be able to bless people in a particular season. But what has happened over the course of, the, of time as decades have unfolded since that time uh, is that the welfare system has become something that, that people are comfortable living on. And so what has happened is, and many of us who are very political and social conservatives, we get all riled up about this, right? Because there are people out there who we're working hard to earn money and paying taxes to go to support people who not only are not looking for a job, but they're not willing to look for a job or find a job. They're living on welfare, Welfare was intended to be a stopgap for people as they looked for a job and they found gainful employment. Rather, what has happened in some occasions is people have abused that welfare system, and what they have done is they've lived on other people's hard work. They've continued to, for, for year after years after years, without looking for a job, without making any kind of contribution. And those of us who are social and political conservatives, we may say, it gets us our blood boiling a little bit. But here's, a part of the, here's, a, here's one of the issues that we've got to address if we're going to really press in the gospel community is this, is that while we may be totally against people who are living off of the, the government's welfare system, many of us at the same time are very comfortable living on spiritual welfare. 
on spiritual welfare. Right? Because there are churches all across our nation or, or, or have individuals in those lives of those congregations, and some of those individuals are, are performing two or three or four ministry roles, while other people sit every Sunday in chairs or in pews or in stadium seating, and they just observe and they just watch and they live off of other people's hard work, and they're kind of like on the outside looking in like a fishbowl. I can remember us uh, uh, having fish at one point in my wife and I's marriage. The first pet we ever got were fish, and they died. Okay, and then we got a dog, and it lived, so we figured we could do kids. And so, with the fishbowl experience, you're kind of on the outside looking in. You're not immersed in that world. And there are many Christians who are that way. They don't feel connected to a church. They don't feel like they've been woven together with, another, with a group of individuals. And here's why. It's because they've been living on spiritual welfare. They've been on the outside of the fishbowl looking in, watching all the fish swim around, picking up pebbles and moving them around, creating little caves. But they had, they, they'd never gotten immersed. They never div, dove into the waters themselves. One of the reasons you don't feel connected sometimes in the life of a congregation is because your hands are too clean. You hadn't gotten them dirty. There are, there are people who are working several ministry roles, and they've, they've got mess up to their shoulders and up to their hips because they've waded into ministry. But then there are people who are just squeaky clean, who are just observing and looking on from the outside, looking in. And if, we're gonna, if you're going to experience this kind of gospel community we've been talking about where your life gets woven together with another life, it's going to be because we get off of spiritual welfare and we begin to make a choice. And that choice this morning that we want to dig into from the scriptures is this. We've got to begin to choose contribution over consumption. You've got to choose contribution over consumption. If you're ever going to feel like you're a part of a family, ever going to feel like you've been, you're being woven together with these other believers, with these other brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, it's going to be because you begin to make an investment and you begin to contribute as opposed to just consuming, as opposed to just receiving, you give, as opposed to just taking, you invest. So there are churches all across our nation, and perhaps even folks who are part of this church, who are, where there are Christians who show up week after week after week after week, and they kind of sit in the cheap seats up high, and they observe with binoculars everything that's going on down on the field, but they never move into the game. And so they feel isolated. They feel disconnected. And what I'm here to tell you today is this, is that if you want to feel connected, if you want to feel woven together with a a family of faith, it's going to be because you begin choosing to contribute over consuming. How do you make that choice? How do you begin to move in that direction? That's what I want us to consider together this morning out of 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the first thing you got to see if you're going to begin to make this choice to consume rather than contribute, or to contribute rather than consume, I'm sorry, <laughs> going backwards there. If we're going to make this choice to contribute rather than consume, the first thing you got to consider is this, is that each and every one of us who are Christians in this room is that we are all stewards. Every single one of us is a steward. I want you to look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, he doesn't say, as some have received a gift, they should use it to serve others. Rather, he says, as each has received a gift. So Peter doesn't say there's some exclusive class of Christians who's received a particular kind of gifting in order to serve in the body of the church. Rather, he says, every one of you who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, each of you has received a gift. 
And then he goes on later in verse 10 to call them stewards. Now, a steward was a household servant. They were a manager of a particular task or duty in the household of an ancient estate. And so they, perhaps they were stewards in the kitchen, or they were stewards in the garden, or they were stewards of, of uh, uh, the children, or they stewarded some particular responsibility or some particular task. And so they applied themselves to the carrying out and finishing of that task. And Peter says, each one of you, each one of us has received the gift, and therefore each one of us is a steward. Each, God has given each of us a task. He's given each of us a gifting to accomplish that task. And if you're going to choose contribution over consumption, you've got to come to grips with the fact that you've been gifted by God in some capacity, in some way, in some shape, in some form, to be a steward in his church. To be a steward in his church. Now, if you've received a gift, there are a couple of implications of this. First of all, the implication is that you and I, I will be held accountable for the gifts that I've received from God, and so will you. If God has given it, he's given it for a purpose and a reason for you to use it and care and, and, and to, to do something with it. And there'll be a day where we stand before God and have to give an account for what we did with the gifts that he's given. We'll be accountable for it. But also, if we've received it, listen, there's no room for arrogance in the life of the church either. And here's on the basis of gifting, and here's why. Because if you receive this gift or I receive particular kinds of gifts, then I didn't conceive those gifts. I didn't create them, Right? God gave them and bestowed them for some particular reason in his, in his will, in his purposes. Right? So that I, I can't kind of draw a line and elevate myself above anyone else in the life of the church because God's gifted me differently, and neither can you. So we'll be accountable for the way that we steward these gifts that God has given us because each of us has received one. And there's no place for drawing lines and saying, well, here's the more important people, kind of the varsity Christians over here. And here's the JV and freshman Christians over here because they have these particular gifts and these folks have these particular gifts. No, if God has given a gift and it's necessary in the life of our church, it's necessary. Right? So how do you, in verse 11, if we move a little bit forward, how do you know where you're gifted? In verse 11, Peter says there's two broad kinds of gifts that God has given in the life of the church. First, he says he's given gifts of speech, then he says he's given gifts of service. There's gifts of speech and there's gifts of service. And when you think of gifts of speech, you might think of somebody who stands before others to preach or they stand before others to teach or they get in a life group setting and they facilitate discussion or maybe across one-on-one discipling people as they exhort them and encourage them. There are folks who have gifts of speech, but there are also folks who have gifts of service, folks who have the gift of hospitality. I mean, they can throw a great party and receive people really warmly and welcome them in. Or folks who have the gift of mercy, and there's something about it that's in their heart that moves out toward people who are hurting and who are in need. Or there are folks who have the gift of leadership, and so they, can, they, they, they look down the future. They don't just kind of see what today's tasks are, but they look forward ahead. What's the next step? What's the next three steps to move forward? They have the gift of administration, so they're managing details and organizing people and resources, or they have the gift of helps, and so whenever something, somebody calls and says, I'm going to have surgery, they just jump on it, and they say, let's bring you meals, or they have the gift of service, so there's a tangible need that arises in someone's life, and they step in to help meet it. There are all kinds of gifts in the church, but Peter says there's two broad categories, gifts of speech and gifts of service. And so how do you know if you have received a gift? If you're a Christian, God has endowed you with a gift. He has. How do you know what it is? 
Let me try and help you with three things this morning, three A's, okay? I had to do that because I'm a preacher, okay? Three A's, right? The first one is this. You got all kinds of assessments out there that are online that you can go and take. And in fact, this week on the blog on our new website, I'm going to post a blog post that's going to point you to a couple of online assessments where you can go and look and maybe perhaps be assessed as far as where your gifts might be. Now, the assessments, the online tools that are out there are a great place to start, but they're not a place to finish. And here's why. If you take enough of those online assessments, okay, it becomes very evident very quickly which of these questions are being asked about which of these particular kinds of gifts. And you say, I want to have that gift. And so I'm going to answer yes, 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 yes to those questions. But it may not necessarily be the way God's wired you or the way that he's gifted you. They're a good place to start, to get a baseline with some of these assessments. If you've never taken a spiritual gifts inventory or assessment, I encourage you to do that. But if you move on from there, from assessments, you also have to consider affirmations. Listen, uh, there, when, when you begin to go, okay, here's maybe how God has wired me or how God has gifted me, so I'm going to begin to employ that gift and begin to serve in capacities that could utilize that gift. And then as you do, are there people coming alongside of you and patting you on the back and saying, man, you did a great job organizing that event, or you did a great job explaining that text of Scripture? Listen, whenever I was uh, in high school and felt God calling me toward vocational ministry and I had an opportunity to lead my first Bible study with high school students and, or junior high students and my palms are all sweaty and my, my pits are all sweaty too, okay? And I'm up there in front of my peers trying to explain what the Bible means. And afterwards, I had people come up and say, man, that was really helpful. That was really encouraging. That was really convicting. Maybe I think God's gifted you in that area. Some of you are thinking, man, they lied to you, right? They lied to you. You can't teach, right? But this is what I began to experience affirmations in that area. And so I continue to step forward in that area because there are people around me who were encouraging me to continue to develop that gift that God had given. So you got these assessments and you got affirmations, people who are coming alongside and agreeing with that and saying, yes, I see that, how that's operating in you. Another A, the final A is this. It helps give some clarity about where maybe God has gifted you is in your areas of your affections. In other words, where it stirs your heart, what causes your blood to boil a little bit. Right? So you go, here's, here's an assessment. Maybe I have the gift of teaching. And maybe there are people coming along and saying, hey, God, God, they're affirming that gift of teaching. They're affirming that gift of administration. They're affirming that gift of leadership. They're affirming that gift of service. But where am I going to employ it in the life of the church? What is it that you're passionate about? What is it that stirs your heart? See, for some of you who have the gift of mercy, perhaps whenever people talk about caring for the poor or serving unwed mothers, it begins to stir something in you. Or those of you who perhaps have the gift of administration, when people start talking about how to best manage people and resources in an organization, it begins to stir something in you. Or those of you who have the gift of leadership, when people talk about how to strategically address issues and what the next step is and the next step after that is, it begins to stir something and your blood, blood begins to boil a little bit. Or those who may have the gift of preaching and teaching, when people question or inquire into the particulars of Scripture, and you get all geeked out. That's kind of like me. Right, you get all geeked out about it. And you want to sit down and have a 30-minute conversation right, about one word in the Bible. Okay, maybe, maybe God's given you that gift of teaching. Or those of you who have the gift of giving, right? When people talk about we need resources to accomplish this new initiative that God is leading us to, 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 to move forward towards, man, something, it awakens something in you. Or those who have the gift of service and helps, and when people talk about tangible needs, they or someone else they know 
have. You want to step forward because something's, something in here, right? And it's not the burrito that you had last night. Rather, it's something in your heart that begins to stir and compel you toward stepping into that need and addressing it. So you got assessments, baseline, affirmations. What are people encouraging you on? Or where, what areas are people encouraging you in? And then affections. What is it that God gets stirred in your heart when you hear about ways to serve or needs that exist? Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, listen, yeah, each has received a gift. I need to figure out what mine is. But listen, somebody else will step up and do it. Somebody else will step into that void. Somebody else will fill that gap. You don't know how busy my life is right now. Okay? Listen, I can put a picture of my kids up here and say, yes, I do. Okay? I know how busy your life is right now. And most of us tend to raise those kinds of objections. Well, you don't know where I am or you don't know what my past is like. God can't use me. But in reality, listen, in reality, Listen to what Peter says. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 10 as well. He said, we should use these gifts that God's given us to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. And that word varied in the original language literally means this. It means, it was a, it was a secular term that was used, to, a technical term used to refer to like rock formations and the precious stones and the colors, many colored. In other words, varied, variegated, many colored. And all these precious rock formations that existed in the ancient world, they would mine some of those. And so they had all these colors. So if you walk into uh, your local home improvement store, you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you walk through the countertop section and you see all the granite out there. You see all the different colors and stripes and shades and polka dots of all the different colors of these natural rock that forms under the ground, and you look at that granite, you can say, there is no piece that is exactly the same as another piece of a naturally occurring rock or precious stone. It doesn't happen that way. They all have a unique identity, a unique fingerprint. And so what Peter says is this, is that though you may be gifted in administration, somebody over on this side of the room and somebody over on this side of the room, both gifted in administration, but you're not gifted in the same capacities, perhaps, or to the same degree. But there's a uniqueness to that gifting. And what that means is this. It means at least this. Is that there are some people that you can minister to better than the, a person with the same gifting. There are some people that you could serve better than someone else who has the same gifting. There's, there, listen, there are, there are there are people who have the gift of teaching and preaching and they can stand before masses and they can be very persuasive and they're very eloquent and they speak very fluidly. But when you get them down one-on-one with people, it's like a train wreck, right? Trying to have a one-on-one conversation with someone. You got people who can have one-on-one conversations with people and disciple people and invest in them personally. But you get them up on a stage and it's a train wreck. It's a plane crash out in the middle of the field. Right? Because everyone has a uniqueness about their gifting like a fingerprint. They're varied colors, many colors, all kinds of giftings. So you can, the way that God has equipped you and wired you, minister and serve in ways that are absolutely unique, regardless of what gift that you have. If all this is true, if what Peter says here is true, that all of us have a gift... And that we should determine and and pursue what kind of gift that is. Is it a gift of speech or a gift of service? What kind of speech? What kind of service? And where's the uniqueness in that? 
all this is true, then it means at least this. At least this. It means that in the church, in the life of the church, there should be no unemployed Christians. There shouldn't be a single unemployed Christian who's living on spiritual welfare. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he said this. He said, in a Christian community, everything depends upon whether each individual is an indispensable link in a chain. Only when even the smallest link is securely interlocked is the chain unbreakable. A community which allows unemployed members to exist within it will perish because of them. And here's why. At least one of the reasons why is because as the community grows, as our church grows, as any church grows, as a community of faith grows, the needs are multiplied. Right? In fact, as elders, we sat down a couple of weeks ago and we had a list of prayer needs a page long. As people begin to come into the life of the church and they have needs and they're submitting prayer needs. And so those prayer needs aren't just a name on a sheet of paper, but they're a person with a story whose life needs to be invested in. And as the community grows, the needs are multiplied. And if there are unemployed members in the life of a particular congregation, here's what happens. Is that you've got a handful of people who all these needs continue to stack upon and stack upon and stack upon and stack upon and eventually... It gets so heavy that it begins to crush and weigh down those handful of individuals who are trying to drive everything forward. And so the, the church, the community begins to unravel. It begins, it's, it's ineffective. It doesn't minister very well. There should be no unemployed Christians in the life of this church or any church. So there should be no one who comes here each week to consume religious goods and services. And then leaves and goes have lunch and then goes about their week. There should be no one who comes here, no Christian, let me say that that way, no Christian who comes here week in and week out in order to listen to inspiring and uplifting music. Just to listen to inspiring and uplifting music. There should be no Christian who comes here week in and week out just to listen to mediocre preaching. There should be no Christian who comes in here week in and week out just to, for the sole purpose of kind of getting their, their hearts filled and their, their tanks refueled. But rather, if you are a Christian and God has brought you to this place in this season at this time, he's brought you here for a reason because he's gifted you uniquely in order to make a contribution to the life of this community. See, right now, every week, Right? Every week it takes, you think about these five key areas of ministry in worship, in children's ministry, in student ministry, in um, life groups, and local outreach, and missions. Right now, in, uh, to, to, for, for our worship services to, to be pulled off on a weekly basis, it takes at least 10 volunteers who are serving behind the scenes in order to help us set up and clean up, in order to man sound, in order to man prompters, in order uh, to, to volunteer up here on the stage with their musical gifts that God has given them. It takes at least 10 volunteers on a weekly basis in order to carry out the worship services of Sabine Creek Fellowship. If you go down into our kids' ministry... On a monthly basis, which is where most people want to be, serving down there on a monthly basis. If people are going to serve down there on a monthly basis, it's going to take at least 50 to 60 volunteers on a monthly basis to ensure that our children's ministry is firing on all cylinders. Now, if you look around the room and you start doing the math and counting heads in this room, that means at least half of our congregation on a monthly basis should be serving down in our kids' ministry. 
If you think about our student ministry, right now we have a part-time student pastor and we have a handful of volunteers who are working with our teenagers. And as we grow and we begin to reach more teenagers, we're going to need other people to step into that, to, to disciple and to care for and to love on high school and middle school students. Right now we've got five life groups that meet across our community in different homes at various times and locations. But as we grow, as God continues to to awaken people's hearts and draws them to Sabine Creek Fellowship, what's going to happen is we're going to need to multiply those life groups and have more life groups in more places at different times. We're going to need hosts for those. We're going to need facilitators for those. We've got an outreach event coming up October 18th as we go down into Royce City to serve and love on the community. And we're going to need volunteers to man booze at time slots from, from, I think, 8 a.m. to 4 or 5 p.m. There's going to be a large window of time. None of you need to be there all day, but most of you need to be there at some point during the day. Right? If there are to be no unemployed Christians in the life of the church, and we have all of these needs... How are you stepping forward? Where are you going to step forward? Where are you going to use the gifts that God has given you? I don't want want you to be unemployed. I want you to experience that weaving together with other lives because you're pursuing a common purpose and a common goal and you're serving toward the same end. And the next thing Peter says to us, he's not done, okay? Next thing that he says to us is this. He says, in order, if you're going to use these gifts, he says, as you employ the gifts, as you engage in utilizing these gifts, he says, you should use the gifts for the good of others and the glory of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, we're told that we've received a gift from God in order to use it to serve one another. So when you look to your left and you look to your right and you look at the person seated in front of you and you look at the person seated behind you, God has uniquely gifted you in order to serve them. Look at the people around you. He's gifted you to serve them. You know, it's interesting that he doesn't say, use it for your own good, right? He says that use it for their good. Use it for the good of others. So in all your speaking and all your serving and all your mercy and all your teaching and all your preaching and all of your administration and all of your leadership, you should be exercising that gift for the good of those who are around you to serve one another. You know, Peter doesn't say here, God's given you a gift in order to platform yourself or to raise yourself up. He says he's given you a gift in order that you might come up underneath others and serve them well. And so when I think about that, and I think about aspiring to grow in, my, in the gifting that God has given me to teach and preach the Bible, I, I do aspire to grow in that gifting. And some of you go, man, I'm so glad to hear that. Right? I do aspire to grow in that gifting. But listen, as I aspire to grow in that gifting, it's not so that our podcast would become higher rated on iTunes, and it's not so that I would have a greater platform to speak and to teach and to preach. Rather, I desire to grow in that gifting so that you might grow, so that I could serve you better. And if you have the gift of leadership, or you have the gift of administration, or you have the gift of mercy, or you have the gift of helps, or you have the gift of service, you should want to exercise that gift and grow in that gift, not so that you would be seen as more than you are, but so that you could serve others better. You could step into their needs more faithfully. Peter says, you've been given this gift, use it for the good of others. 
But notice the second thing that he says also. He says that in everything, later on down in verse 11, he says we received the gift from God to use it for his glory. He says that in everything, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, the everything that Peter refers to there is in all your speaking and all of your serving, in all your gifts of speech and in all your gifts of service, that in everything that you do as you step forward to serve, that God would receive glory so that you'd be serving not to make a name for yourself, but you'd be serving to make a name for him, to make him famous, not to make yourself famous. Peter says you use these gifts for the good of others and the glory of God. And this, what Peter says here, means the, at least this to us. Right? It isn't long, typically, in a conversation about gifts that the conversation begins to turn a little bit inward, right? And we begin to talk about how serving and how it's so personally fulfilling for us. And it makes us feel good that we've used these gifts that God's given us to serve other people. And so the motive becomes personal fulfillment. But Peter doesn't say anything about personal fulfillment in the text. He says, God's given you a gift. Use it to serve others and use it for his glory. Not so that you would feel good, not so that you'd be personally fulfilled. And here's why that's so vitally important. Because if you're going to use a gift just because it makes you feel good about how you're using it or where you're using it or why you're using it, if you're going to use it for personal fulfillment, eventually that motive is going to ring very hollow in your life. Because eventually you're going to be asked to do something that isn't very personally fulfilling. (laughs) Right? A need's going to arise in the life of the church, and people are going to call for help and people to step into that need, and you're going to go, well, that's just, uh, that's not very fulfilling for me. So you're not going to step forward, but if you're stepping forward, why? Because God's given you a gift to use it for the good of others and his glory, then it's not about my personal fulfillment, about how good it makes me feel. But what's good for the person who's seated to my right or to my left or in front of me or behind me? What's good for them? How do I make God famous in using this gift? You see, Peter says nothing about personal fulfillment. So if, if you're serving just to have receive affirmations from people or applause from people or people to say, man, you did a great job when those dry up or you didn't continue to serve. If no one's giving you a standing ovation every time that you exercise your gift, are you going to continue to serve? It's no longer personally fulfilling. What's the motive driving your service? Now, the final thing I want us to see in the text is this. Peter not only says we're all stewards, and he calls us to use our gifts for the good of others and the glory of God, but I want you to see what, what is the motive that's driving this. What is the motive that's driving this? And the motive that's driving this, Peter gives us in verse 7. If you go back up into verse 7, Peter says, the only way that you're going to get the motivation, lasting motivation to continue to serve and speak in a way that is for the good of others and the glory of God, is if you see that you are right now standing on the threshold between this age and the age that is to come. You're standing on the threshold of this age and the age that is to come. Look what Peter says in verse 7. He he says, the end of all things is at hand. And then he rolls off several other commands. So he says, here's a conviction, right? We're living in these last days. The end of all things is at hand. And then he goes on to say, because we're living, because the end of all things is at hand, Peter says, pray and love and show hospitality to one another because you're living on the threshold between this age and the next. 
Now, Peter says, he goes on in verse 10, and the command in verse 10 is also connected back there to that conviction in verse 7. So Peter says, God's given you a gift, a unique gift, and you should leverage it for the sake of the good of others and leverage it for the sake of God's glory because you're living in a day and a time, a day and a time where you're living on the threshold between this age and the age that is to come. In other words, Jesus could return at any moment. And when he returns, when he returns, and you stand before him, and you have to give an account for how you've used that gift that he's given you. Now, listen, at this point, many of us who maybe aren't Christians, we may think to ourselves, aha, I finally got it right. So here's how it works. So I do this, and then God does this for me. He receives me, right? So if I, if I work really hard in the life of the church to do really good things for Jesus, then when Jesus comes back, he'll receive me. That's not at all what Peter is saying. I want you to notice, if you go back into 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope, according to his great mercy, so that what we have now in him is this inheritance that he has promised. And he says he's keeping that inheritance in heaven for us, and he's keeping us here right now on earth through faith for that inheritance. So Peter's writing to people who are already Christians, and he's saying this to them. He's saying God has given you an inheritance, and that is secure. No one can snatch that away from you, and no one can rip it out of your hands. And because of that inheritance that you've been given, and because he can return at any moment, because he can return at any moment, then you use the gifts you've been given for the good of those who are around you and the glory of God. Not so that when he returns, you would shrink back in fear because you haven't, you think he's not going to accept you. No, 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 no. But rather when he returns rather than when he returns, that you would not look in the face of unfailing love, infinite grace, ultimate kindness, and have lived an ungrateful life. This God who would never reject you if you were in Christ, this God who will, who's promised to receive you if you were in Christ, that you would not look in his eyes and see his eyes full of unfailing love and think back and think, I've lived an ungrateful life because I have not. I have, my hands have stayed clean. They haven't gotten dirty. I've stayed on the outside of the fish tank looking in while all this work is being done. See, my heart for you as your pastor is that you would not one day look into Jesus' eyes and grieve the fact that you lived an ungrateful life with what he's given you here and now. See, if you're a Christian, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says we're part of a body. And there are eyes and there are ears and there are arms and there are legs and there are fingers and there are toes. And if you or I are not exercising the gifts that God has given us, in essence, we are causing this community and this church to be handicapped. Right? Which, what, what do you not want? Do you not want hands? Do you not want feet? Do you not want eyes or ears? No, I think most of us would say we want all of it. We want all of it. And if we want all of it, then all of us, all of us are going to have to help carry some of the load and carry some of the weight with the gifts that God has given us. 
and step forward. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we come today giving you thanks for your grace and mercy and kindness. Giving you thanks for your grace and mercy and kindness. Father, we thank you for uh, your love, great love for us. And Father, I pray that none of us would leave here today um, thinking that some way, shape, or form that we have to work in order to be received, that we have to labor in order to be accepted, but rather because we've been accepted, because we have been received, that we would pour our lives out for the sake of others and for your glory, not to make a name for ourselves and not to achieve personal fulfillment, but rather to make a name for Jesus and to show love to others. Father, I pray in these next few moments as the band leads us in one final song, I pray that we would reflect upon how you've gifted us and that we'd be willing to take a step forward today to serve those around us for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name.